Well, it was my mistake not to print enough bulletins. Um, if there, I think there are, we're missing one or two on that table over there. If you have a bulletin and you're not using it, uh, would you please share it with somebody who hasn't got one? Uh, I think you'll need to have your Bible open at the passage that Brenda has just read for us, and if at the same time you can uh, follow the outline on the inside of the white bulletin, that will be a great help to you and to me. So uh, let's bow, let's ask for God's help as we look at this tremendous text together. Heavenly Father, we are gathered as a great diversity of people this morning with many pressures, many concerns, many needs. And we come seeking a word of truth, a word of clarity. And we pray, Lord, that you would draw near to each one of us and speak to us clearly and powerfully and change us forever. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Is there life after death? Uh, Many people hope that there is. Uh, A lot of people doubt it. They say that the, the only thing we can know for sure is the fact that we are now living. Uh, The Humanist Manifesto puts it like this. There is no credible evidence that life survives the death of the body. But here's another view. Uh, This is Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans. And he says this, We are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. Now what do you think? Uh, Which is right? What do you think about the resurrection? More specifically, what do you think about the resurrection of Christians? Now, I called our passage this morning, Putting Jesus in His Place. Uh, You might think that sounds rather impertinent. But I've done it for two reasons. First, Luke tells us, that it's what the religious leaders were trying to do. We saw that last week, didn't we, if you were here. Uh, Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, The people had proclaimed him as king. Jesus had gone straight into the temple and cleaned it up. And every day he was preaching to vast crowds the good news of the gospel. But uh, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. They wanted to put Jesus in his place which, as far as they were concerned, was on a Roman cross. But secondly, in this passage, God also wants to put Jesus in his place. And the place that God wants to put Jesus is to raise him from the dead and to place him at his right hand with all authority throughout the universe, in the highest place of honour. It's very interesting to me that at this point in Luke's Gospel we're within a few days of Jesus' death and yet very clearly Jesus has got resurrection on his mind. Now there are two main points in the passage and at the end Jesus makes two applications, two concrete examples from real life that illustrate for us, I think, the difference that resurrection makes in our lives now, in the lives of Christians, I should say. 
It's actually uh, an important passage because it's one of the very few places where Jesus teaches us how to understand the resurrection. Uh, In the course of his ministry, Jesus raised a number of people from the dead. Uh, Lazarus, the widow's son, Jairus' daughter, are the ones that we know about. There were probably more. But surprisingly, Jesus gave very little direct teaching on the subject. If we want that, we have to turn to the other New Testament documents and to the Apostle Paul in particular. But this actually is one of the few places where Jesus does speak about the resurrection. And what he says is absolutely stunning. So we do need to have our brains in gear and our Bibles open and listen to what he has to say. And by the time we've finished, I want us to understand how dangerously practical the resurrection is for our lives today. So, two main points, and uh, the first, in verses 27 to 40, I've called taking the life out of the resurrection. Now, in verse 27, we meet the Sadducees, actually for the first time in Luke's Gospel. And the one thing we're told about them is that they don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, Schoolboys of a former generation found this rather amusing and used to say they don't believe in the resurrection and that is why they are so sad, you see. Uh, On a more serious note, the Sadducees were actually the elite in Jewish society. They were right at the top of the food chain. Uh, They were at the top of the authority structure at the temple in Jerusalem. And by tradition, the high priest was nearly always a Sadducee. They were wealthy, they were aristocratic, and they had their minds very firmly fixed on this life. They didn't believe in heaven, they didn't believe in angels. Uh, They thought the idea of the resurrection was sheer nonsense because they'd created a religion that was defined entirely by their own imagination. I want to say to us this morning that the spirit of the Sadducee is very much alive and well today. We see it, don't we, in people who call themselves spiritual and say, if not in so many words, then at least by their behaviour, well, I'm only living for now. I'm only living for today. The future doesn't actually concern me. That is the spirit of the Sadducee. And uh, you see it also, I think, in those who limit the Christian faith to what they can imagine. They're actually rather embarrassed by certain parts of the Bible and they mentally cut them out of Scripture, especially those nasty passages that speak about judgment or sexual morality. And they modify the faith so that it doesn't interfere too much with their lifestyle. Now, one of the funny things is that, of course, when you do that, God gradually becomes more and more like you. His interests are your interests. He's no longer able to challenge you or to change you. And instead, from time to time, he he comforts you that actually, yes, your opinion is probably about right. That is the Sadducee. 
Now, in our passage, I think their arrogance comes through very strongly. There they are, they're dripping with pride as they come to Jesus and they try and ridicule this idea of the resurrection. Uh, In verses 28 to 33, they pick up an Old Testament principle that said sometimes in some circumstances, uh, if a man married a woman and died childless, his brothers could marry the widow in order to raise children in his name. And they put to Jesus the story of uh, these seven rather unlucky brothers who all felt obliged to marry the same widow. The first brother died, the second brother died, the third brother died, and so on. I reckon by the time they got to the fourth brother, they'd become suspicious of the widow's cooking, don't you think? Now, say the Sadducees, uh, about this uh, silly resurrection business. If all these people die and go to heaven, who's going to be married to whom? And uh, we can imagine their smirk, can't we? They probably think they've delivered the knockout blow to the doctrine of the resurrection. Notice, will you, that Jesus is remarkably patient with them. Just think about it with me. Uh, They're talking, aren't they, to the one who came from heaven, who's going back to heaven, and who has the power of life and death in his hands. And although they're trying to humiliate him, and ultimately to kill him, instead of retaliating, Jesus, as it were, opens the door to show them something of the true nature of the resurrection. But uh, they're playing an extremely dangerous game. You see, they've asked Jesus a two-cent question, and Jesus gives them a billion-dollar answer. And I want to warn you that um, as we're reading these words, they are like thunderclaps for us spiritually. I don't think we always appreciate the consummate authority and at the same time the the utter relaxed ease with which Jesus talks about God and heaven and resurrection and who's there and who's not going to be there and what life in the resurrection is going to be like. So let me read, and I hope you'll follow, just a couple of verses from verse 34. These are very remarkable words. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Now notice there, will you, that Jesus divides history and reality in two. He says there is this age and there is that age. There is this world and there is the world to come. And he says to the Sadducees, look, the problem that you've got is that because you're in love with this age and with this world, and with all of the trinkets that it has to offer, your view of the resurrection is totally upside down. Because the reality is that the resurrection opens the door to a different world, to a different life, 
to a different order of existence. You see, the Sadducees are trying to rubbish the idea of the resurrection with an analogy about marriage. And Jesus says, look here, your mistake is that your example implies that the next life is just a continuation of this life. It perhaps lasts for hundreds and hundreds of years and there are one or two um, modifications and improvements here or there. But you see, the point that Jesus is making concerns the radical discontinuity between the resurrection life and the life that we're living now. The whole system of life is radically different at the resurrection. For a start... Jesus says that those who are raised cannot die anymore. They're like the angels. They'll be immortal. Now, of course, some things in the resurrection life will be recognisably the same. And so, in that sense, there is a measure of continuity with our experience here. But there's going to be radical discontinuity as well. And that is what Jesus wants to emphasise in our passage I think of gardening. If you go into the garden shed and there's a seed lying on on the shelf, you pick up the seed and you look at it, you cannot possibly know the, the beauty or the fragrance of the flower that's going to grow from that seed. Or uh, take a better illustration. Uh, think of baby Ryan over there. Um, I think he's probably, is he two months old now? Three months old, three months old. Anyway, three months old and very handsome and we're getting to know him better and better every week. But um, if you asked him what uh, he thought about the beauty of the cape nine months ago, he wouldn't have been able to tell you. Uh, He was alive. He was in Cape Town. But nine months ago, he was in no position to answer questions about the Cape landscape, was he? And in the same way, you see, when you ask the question, what becomes of our marriages in the resurrection? Jesus is saying we don't have the categories to understand it. At one level, there's going to be, well, no need for marriages to produce children. Why not? Well, one of the primary purposes of marriage in this age is procreation. Do you remember from the beginning of the world that God told man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Because if we didn't do that, death would have done its work and the human race would have died out. But you see, in eternity, no one dies. So there's no need for offspring and therefore no need for marriage. But Jesus is saying something far more important than that. He's saying that in the age to come, Marriages are going to be different because we're going to experience everything that marriage in this life is pointing to. There's going to be no sense of loss. There's going to be no sense that something is missing. But notice this. In verse 35, Jesus tells us who's going to be there, who's going to be raised. And the people who are going to be raised are those who are considered worthy. You see, it's not those who think themselves worthy. It's not those who are trying to make themselves worthy. It's those whom God 
considers worthy. And it's very interesting, isn't it, that we know from the rest of Luke's Gospel that the people that God considers worthy are the people who say, Lord, I am not worthy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then in verses 37 and 38, Jesus turns to the Sadducees and he says, you know, if you read your Bible, you would know better. If you'd read your Bible, you would know the truth about the resurrection. And then Jesus proceeds to take them back to that day in the Old Testament when God, you remember, appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Do you remember that when that happened, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had already been dead for centuries? And yet when God appeared to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not I was the God of these important men. And of course, by putting it like that, God was teaching something about his unchanging nature and faithfulness, that he's just the same now as he was when those men were alive. But he's doing more than that. He wasn't only saying something about himself. He was also saying something about these men. You see, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had to be alive in order for God to be their God. Uh, As one writer puts it, the alternative is to think of God as the God of non-existent beings. And that is absurd. Now, you see, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, what he was saying was this. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob may be dead and gone to you, but to me, they are very much alive. But, of course, the Sadducees couldn't swallow it. Do you know, today, uh, we are constantly bombarded, aren't we, with the propaganda of the Sadducee. Almost um, every movie and song that speaks about heaven does the, the Sadducee thing by limiting it to our imagination. Uh, a few years ago, uh, there was a film called What Dreams May Come, starring Robin Williams. Uh, it's the story of a man called Chris who is killed and goes to heaven. But uh, he's miserable in heaven because his wife Annie isn't there. Uh, In due course, his wife dies, but she goes to hell. And uh, in the movie, Chris himself goes down to hell and rescues her and brings her back to heaven. Uh, The film won an Academy Award for visual effects and it was highly praised by all the critics for being brilliantly creative. Well, I'm not sure about that. Um, What it does is it sucks all of the life and truth of the resurrection out of it because it's limiting the afterlife to the boundaries of human imagination. I wish I could say that only happened in secular culture. But unfortunately, there are Christian examples of the same thing. Billy Graham is without doubt the greatest evangelist of the last hundred years, if not the last five hundred years. And quite rightly, Christians around the world love him 
enormously. But uh, if we were to visit the Billy Graham Evangelistic Museum in Wheaton, Illinois, what we would find is four floors of exhibits uh, that record some of the extraordinary things that God did through the ministry of Dr. Graham. But on the fourth floor, there is a, a room called the Heaven Room. I haven't been, but I'm told that uh, visitors walk down a corridor into a room with four blank walls painted with clouds and uh, the Hallelujah Chorus is being played on a continuous loop. Now, is that helpful? Uh, The idea that heaven is clouds and music? I'm not sure it is. I actually can't believe that Dr. Graham approved the design of that room because it takes all of the life out of the resurrection. So that, friends, is our first point. The Sadducee defines God by his own imagination and that takes all the life out of the resurrection. And so we would expect, wouldn't we, that Jesus would do something about that and so in the next section he confronts it. And I'm calling this section putting the life back into the resurrection. And we're looking at verses 41 to 44. They are the most important verses in the whole passage. And let me introduce them to you like this. If you look carefully at verse 39, you'll find that there's a second group of people. Not the Sadducees this time, but the teachers of the law. And the teachers of the law do believe in a resurrection. And they say to Jesus, I suspect very patronisingly, well said, teacher, you've put those Sadducees in their place. We were right all along. And uh, in this section, you see, Jesus is saying to them, hold on a moment. You can be completely orthodox in your Uh, in what you say about the resurrection. You can say the creed with utter confidence and still completely miss the point. Because the point of the resurrection is not that you've got your theology laser accurate. No, the point of the resurrection is Jesus Christ himself. You see, if you think of the resurrection purely in terms of what it means for you and your happy life after death, and Jesus does not feature large in your thinking, you've totally misunderstood it. So what Jesus does in these verses is to take them to Psalm 110, which is actually one of the most important texts in the whole Bible. Psalm 110 is quoted more frequently in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage. And we need to spend a moment on it. Please keep one finger in Luke 20 and turn back with me, please, to Psalm 110 on page 430. Page 430, Psalm 110. I'm only going to read the first verse, but there's something I need you to notice. Because, you see, in the book of Psalms, unlike the other books of the Bible, the heading is a part of the inspired text. And so we start with that. Psalm 110, it begins, doesn't it, of David, a psalm. Verse 1, 
The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How many different individuals are there in that text? Well, if we, if we leave the enemies on one side for a moment, there are three, aren't there? And they're all extremely important. There's David, who wrote the psalm. Then there is the Lord. And if you look very closely, you'll see that the word Lord there is printed in capital letters. So it's the name by which the Creator God revealed himself to Israel. It is the personal name of God Almighty. But then there's a third character. Because David says, the Lord said to my Lord. So there's a second Lord in the first line. And this second Lord is the focus of the psalm. And God the Creator says to this second Lord, sit at my right hand, in other words, I'm enthroning you over the entire universe, the place of ultimate authority, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's David talking about? Well, the answer is that David is talking about Jesus Christ. When did that happen? Well, the New Testament tells us that the day that Jesus was enthroned at the right hand of God was the day of his resurrection. And that is the point of the resurrection. That is the point of the empty tomb. It is my only other cross-reference today, I promise you, but turn quickly with me, please, to Acts chapter 2 on page 770. Acts chapter 2, page 770. While you're turning there, let me remind you that this is the first sermon that was preached by Peter following the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Jesus, you remember, had been raised from the dead just 40 days before. Peter touches on the resurrection in verse 24 of Acts 2, but I, I want us to focus on verses 32 to 36. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we, that is to say the apostles, we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and so on. And here is Peter's application in verse 36. This is what it means. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So, my dear friends, the point of the resurrection is not that you and I get a happy life after death. The point of the resurrection is that God has crowned Jesus 
as the Lord of Psalm 110 and seated him at his right hand where he rules all things. Now, his rule uh, is often, frequently, mostly invisible to us. But you see, what God has been doing ever since that first resurrection morning and will continue to do until the Lord Jesus comes again is that God has been putting all of the enemies of Jesus under his feet. And ultimately, that will include death itself. Friends, this is very, very important. The resurrection is about Christ. Our resurrection is part of Christ's resurrection. Our resurrection only comes about because he has been placed at the right hand of the Father. And you see, the way that you and I receive the resurrection in that age is by going to Christ in this age and seeing, really grasping and believing that he is the chief cornerstone, something we saw two weeks ago. The one whom God has chosen above all things and all people. You do sometimes hear, don't you, Christians talking about life after death and they say something like this, well, I think it's going to be great uh, because I'm going to be reunited with uh, Uncle Bob and uh, my favourite golden retriever. Now that is partly true. Uh, We are going to be reunited with believers that we've loved. But the real point of the resurrection is not just that the chains of death have been broken. It's about who broke them. It's Jesus Christ who broke them. You and I could never do that for ourselves. And so Jesus is our resurrection. He is our life. He is our justification. He is our redemption He is our exodus, quite literally. And that's got massive implications for all kinds of things. For example, think for a moment, what is the greatest difficulty, the greatest pressure that sometimes threatens to overpower you? Well, right now, God is busy placing it under the feet of Jesus. And so the way that we deal with that difficulty, whatever it is, is that we go to him and we ask him for help because he's already defeated it. You know, you and I might be dealing with the symptoms, but the outcome's not in doubt. So let's gather all of these ideas up and come back to Luke 20 on page 743. And let me ask you, don't you find this amazing? I hope you do. You know, this is what Jesus had in his mind a couple of days before he went to the cross. So just look again at the question Jesus asks in verse 41. How is it that they say the Christ is the son of David. Now we know from the rest of Luke's Gospel that Jesus is the son of David. Um, The angels announced it. Gabriel announced it. The crowds have said it. The blind beggar at Jericho said it. But you see, they haven't seen that the son of David is God in the flesh. 
that he is David's Lord in Psalm 110. But you see, we've been looking at that, haven't we? And because we've been looking at that, can you see that the Sadducees are looking really rather foolish? You know, there they are. They're they're arguing the things of God with the Son of God. But he doesn't crush them. He doesn't humiliate them. Instead, what he does is he, he opens the scriptures before them ever so gently. The great danger for them is that in their worldly religion, they've separated their understanding of resurrection from Jesus. And the problem is, if you separate resurrection from Jesus, you've got an empty religious device with no power to give you any hope, zero power to change you. It can't turn us out from ourselves to go and serve others. But what was it that so radicalised the early Christians in the book of Acts that they went out and risked their lives for the gospel? You remember the Holy Spirit came and filled them with power. Now what did they preach? What was their message? Let me tell you what it wasn't. They didn't say, um, I'm going to be raised from the dead and you too can be raised from the dead. They did not say that. No, they said Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and uh, from that position he offers us forgiveness and life and the Holy Spirit and he's ruling over all things and he's going to remake all things. Heaven and earth are going to be restored and right now God is placing all things under his feet. That is the gospel. And you see, nothing else in all the world can give us the courage to face persecution. Nothing else can dethrone the idols from our lives except seeing Christ for who he is and what he's done and what he's doing in the world today and what he's going to do when he comes back. To put it more simply, it's all a question of where our treasure is. So let's turn very quickly to the two illustrations that Jesus gives right at the end of the passage because they are absolutely devastating. The two illustrations show us what the resurrection means now. One is negative, the other is positive. The negative illustration is in verses 45 to 47... And let me tell you that that is a picture of religion without God, without any spiritual life in it whatsoever. In verse 46, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Beware the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Now that, my friends, is religion on my terms. That is horizontal religion. Uh, It's religion that doesn't care a fig 
about what God is doing or what God has said. It's actually a front that conceals the fact that its practitioners are enslaved to idols. Uh, Ever since chapter 12 in the book of Luke, there are three idols that are emphasised and exposed again and again and again. Money, human approval and status. And that's the religion in these verses. These men have invested in fashion for their own status. It's, It's ecclesiastical fashion, but we know what they're really doing. They love being greeted in the shopping malls. They love the most important seats and the places of honour, not because God will see them and applaud them, but because it gives them status in society. And that phrase that they devour widows' houses, well, it's a way of saying that they use their religion to take money from those people who are kind and patient but vulnerable. And they trade on that vulnerability because money is their idol. Now, my dear friends, that is a religion that is empty and it is powerless. And you know what? It's astonishing how easily people are taken in by it. It's everywhere today. But it's not the religion of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's a religion that wants what God gives but doesn't want God. And Jesus says something absolutely terrifying, doesn't he, at the end of chapter 20. He says, such men will be punished most severely. Think about that. You see, the Son of God is saying that on the day of judgment, there are going to be degrees of condemnation. And those who've lived the life of the religious hypocrite who've used their religion as a cover for greed and status to indulge their idols, they're going to be judged most severely, says Jesus. But then Jesus uses the positive illustration, the most beautiful illustration, actually, in chapter 21, verse 1. Uh, Here is a woman rather than a man, and she's poor. Now, in that society, that meant she has no status at all. When she's in the shopping malls, people don't even notice her. She's weak, she's defenceless, but you see, she has something in her life that's more important than money, more important than human approval. What is it? Well, there she is. She's in the temple as Jesus is talking. And uh, we can picture her, can't we, in a long line of major donors. Uh, There they are, depositing their large gifts into the temple treasury. And they're doing it so that everybody can see. They're hoping their name is going to be on the honours board when the temple's finished. But uh, everything about this woman is wrong. She's wearing the wrong clothing. Her gift is pathetic in human terms, just two copper coins. And Jesus says, God loves it. You see, God measures this totally different from the world, doesn't he? 
totally different from the way we would. God isn't impressed with money. He's not impressed with status. He's not impressed with public opinion. He's interested in what is going on in the heart of this woman. And effectively, Jesus is saying that all the big givers on that day actually did very little that counted in eternity. They could easily afford their big gifts. It didn't actually affect their lifestyle at all, did it? But in God's sight, what the poor widow did was actually more than everybody else put together. And the reason is that she gave all of her life. That actually is the literal translation of the phrase in verse 4. The phrase in verse 4 is that she put in all she had to live on and Luke, who's an absolute genius, uh, did that deliberately because it could also read she gave all of her life. She handed over her entire existence in two copper coins. So what on earth, my dear friends, has the power to cure you and me of greed and idolatry? To replace my stinginess with a sacrificial attitude to change me from being a taker and make me into a giver. And the answer Jesus gives is, on this earth, nothing. It's only what's happening in heaven. It's only the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And here is this this woman who's able to give her life to God because she believes that God has the power to raise the dead. My dear friends, it is only the resurrection that has the power to loosen the chains of our idols. And let me say to you that if this poor widow could do what she did on that day, you and I have at least as much reason because Jesus has now been raised from the dead. He's appeared to many, he's been taken up to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the ultimate power, far above all rule and authority in this age and in the age to come. So let us pray and ask God to engrave this wonderful, life-changing truth on our hearts this morning. Shall we pray? The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Heavenly Father, thank you for raising Jesus from the dead and giving him the place of all authority in the universe. Thank you for this great sign and seal of your promise to raise all those who put their trust in him. Help us, Lord, to take our eyes off the trinkets and treasures of this world which are passing away and to focus our minds on the greatest reality in the universe, that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Please purge us of all religious pretense that is no more than a cover for idolatry and give us the vision of the poor widow who was so gripped by her conviction that you have the power to raise the dead that she gave her whole life to you with nothing kept back. And surely even this morning, 2,000 years later, that widow is still saying, I am so glad I did it. Make us like her, we pray. Amen.